Hi, and welcome to The Week in Women. I'm your host, Jill Filipovich. As a reminder, paid subscribers to jill.substack.com get The Week in Women podcast early, delivered to your inbox every Friday. So if you want to listen before everyone else, head to jill.substack.com to sign up. The Week in Women is a rundown of the week's most important international gender and women's rights stories, followed by a deeper dive into a single issue. This week, you'll hear about the ongoing impact of cruel abortion criminalization laws, the devolving status of women in Afghanistan, and how a man who looks like Herman Munster and is under investigation for sex trafficking has the nerve to claim that women who have abortions are the ugly ones. I'm super excited about this week's episode because it features a conversation with two neurologists about how laws criminalizing abortion can affect seemingly unrelated fields of medicine, like neurology, which means that abortion bans might impact everything from the care a multiple sclerosis patient can access to what kind of medicine you might be prescribed for a migraine, to what happens when a woman who's pregnant with a much-wanted child finds out that her fetus has severe neurological conditions incompatible with life, to how certain cancers might be treated or not treated if the person with cancer is pregnant. It's an incredibly important conversation with two absolutely brilliant women, and we cover issues that I haven't heard about or read about anywhere else. And so I hope you stick around for the second half of the show and give it a listen. But first, this week's headlines. Abortion bans in the U.S. are still wreaking havoc across the country, with women denied medical care and finding themselves near death because of vague, punishing anti-abortion laws. And still, Republicans are arguing over just how far these laws should go. In many states, including West Virginia, Indiana, and Nebraska, the New York Times reports, Republicans are united in their desire to ban abortion, but they're divided on whether or not to allow any exceptions for the procedure. Some want to ban abortion with virtually no exceptions, and others want to provide very narrow, very basic exceptions, things like exceptions for rape and incest survivors, exceptions for the life of the pregnant woman. In Indiana, a bill that would have allowed women with life-threatening pregnancy complications to terminate those pregnancies and that would have also allowed rape and incest survivors to end their pregnancies quite early so long as they sign an affidavit verifying that they were actually assaulted, didn't gain support from the Republican Party. Instead, it divided it. Indiana Right to Life called this law, quote, weak and troubling because it wasn't harsh enough on anyone involved in an abortion. In the meantime, states that have not criminalized abortion are seeing a huge influx of patients seeking abortion services, straining their health systems, and leading to pretty significant backlogs at clinics. A study led by Caitlin Myers, who's a professor at Middlebury College, found that some clinics, and particularly those in the Southwest, Texas, Oklahoma, and Arizona have all banned abortion, are so full that they aren't booking in new appointments at all. In Colorado, for example, abortion clinics are seeing two-week wait times, a big problem for women who are traveling because of medical emergencies and need abortion care, 
or those who are on the cusp of the legal limit. Clinics in states bordering those that have outlawed abortion are seeing the heaviest traffic. Almost a quarter of them have no appointments for three weeks. Providers at these clinics are working 12 or 13 hour days, a pace that is simply unsustainable. And as wait times increase, abortion procedures become more expensive and more involved. And vulnerable patients, especially those who are low income or who are quite young, have a harder time accessing them and see their right to choose taken away. A New York Times analysis published this week looks at state abortion laws and state support for mothers and infants and found that the most anti-abortion states are also the least supportive of new moms, pregnant women, and their babies, compared to states where abortion rights are protected and are likely to stay that way. States where abortion is already banned or where abortion is likely to be banned also have higher rates of child poverty, uninsured women and children, low birth weight babies, teen births, and infant and maternal mortality. These states are less likely to have expanded Medicaid to cover women beyond two months after giving birth. They're less likely to mandate a minimum wage above the paltry and unlivable $7.25 an hour federal minimum wage. And not one single state that bans abortion offers paid family leave. Matt Gatz, the Florida congressman who's under investigation for possible sex trafficking and was just one of 20 conservative members of Congress to vote against reauthorizing a federal sex trafficking law, recently summed up the rank misogyny of the anti-abortion movement when he told a crowd of young conservatives, have you watched these pro-abortion, pro-murder rallies? The people are just disgusting. But why is it that women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions? Nobody wants to impregnate you if you look like a thumb. It was an interesting insult coming from Matt Getz, who himself has a cranium so oddly shaped that it arguably resembles a thumb. He also notoriously bears a striking resemblance to 90s cartoon icon Butthead of Beavis and Butthead. Uh, but this has always been a chief misogynist argument against women's rights, that some of us are simply too ugly to have rights. The basic theory seems to be that women are only valuable if we're sexually appealing to men and if we manage to earn male approval. These are the kind of men who are writing anti-abortion laws. Their motivation isn't life, it's misogyny. After 33 years, the Tour de France Femme, the female-only version of the famous French bike race, is back. The women's race was first held in 1955, and then not again until 1984. The last one, though, was held in 1989, and since then, women have been excluded from cycling's most exclusive race. But even though a women's race happened this year, there remains a huge disparity in prize money. The male winner of the tour received more than half a million dollars, with a prize purse of more than two million total. The female winner received $50,000, and total prize money amounted to roughly $250,000. And at eight days, the women's race is shorter, much shorter, than the men's 21-day ride, despite many female cyclists wanting to ride the same route. Iran has been cracking down on women's rights, 
And the latest move comes from the country's guidance ministry, which has told advertising agencies not to feature any women. A Domino ice cream ad was recently deemed a crime that promotes immorality, just for featuring a woman. This is part of a broader assault on women's freedoms in Iran, as the government tightens misogynist modesty rules that require women and girls over the age of nine to wear hijabs and conservative dress, and six, the morality police on women who don't comply. Norway, Denmark, and the Netherlands are in a diplomatic standoff with the United Kingdom over a gender equality agreement after the UK stripped out language related to reproductive rights and sexual health. Norway, Denmark, and the Netherlands are refusing to sign the agreement. The UK, for its part, has not adequately explained why the language was removed in the first place. A new report from Amnesty International details the utterly barbaric return of Taliban rule in Afghanistan and just how badly women and girls are suffering. The report, titled Death in Slow Motion, Women and Girls Under Taliban Rule, states that the rates of child, early, and forced marriage in Afghanistan appear to have surged with the Taliban back in charge, and that Afghan women and girls have been left with virtually no rights, no right to education or work, no rights in their families or over who they marry, no right to determine how they dress or exercise basic freedoms. The U.S. has urged the Taliban to change course, but has not offered much else in the way of protection or support or safe harbor for the women and girls who desperately need it. And finally, the U.S. has reportedly offered Russia a prisoner exchange in an effort to bring home two U.S. citizens detained in Russia, Paul Whelan and WNBA star Brittany Griner. Whelan, who was accused of espionage, has been held in Russia since 2018. Griner, who was imprisoned on trumped-up drug charges, faces 10 years in a Russian penal colony. And while her case is now making headlines, it was largely ignored for months fostering accusations of racism and sexism. Imagine, critics argued, if a prominent NBA star was being wrongly held in a Russian jail. So far, the Kremlin has not agreed to any deal. Now I'm joined by two special guests, Drs. Don Gano and Sarah LaHue, who along with Dr. Riley Bove have co-authored a paper titled Reproductive Rights in Neurology the Supreme Court's impact on all of us. And I've got to tell you, when this paper showed up in my inbox, I was both totally fascinated and entirely floored because even though I've covered reproductive rights for more than a decade, I had never heard about so much of what these doctors warned of. How, to sum it up, abortion bans don't just impact reproductive health, but neurological health and access to a whole slew of treatments for common neurological conditions from multiple sclerosis to migraines. And so I am incredibly excited to have two of the paper's co-authors on to talk about how abortion bans impact neurology and other areas of medicine seemingly unrelated to reproduction. Joining me is Dr. Dawn Gano, an associate professor of neurology and pediatrics at UCSF. She is a pediatric neurologist and clinical researcher who specializes in fetal and neonatal neurology, and she co-leads the fetal neurology program at UCSF. She obtained her undergraduate degree at McGill University 
studied medicine at McMaster University, and completed residency training at the University of British Columbia. She has completed her fellowship in neonatal neurology and master's in clinical research at UCSF, and her research centers on modifiable risk factors for brain injury and adverse neurodevelopmental outcomes in fetuses and critically ill newborns. Also joining me is Dr. Sarah LaHue, an associate professor of clinical neurology at the University of California, San Francisco. She obtained her medical degree as well as completed both neurology residency and neurohospitalist fellowship at UCSF. She directs curricular development on sex and gender informed neurology at UCSF and is co-author of Emergency Neurology. I'm so grateful for both of you for coming on the show. I'm going to ask you both to introduce yourselves and tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and your work. Thanks for having me. Professionally, I'm a pediatric neurologist and I specialize in fetal and neonatal neurology and caring for kids with neurological problems as they grow up. But first and foremost, I'm a woman and I'm worried. And I really want to use my voice as an academic clinician to contribute to the discourse. I'm Dr. Sarah LaHue. I'm a neurologist at UCSF, assistant professor and neurohospitalist, which means that I'm a neurologist that really exclusively takes care of people who are admitted to the hospital for some sort of neurologic emergency. And that can be people, all backgrounds, all ages, aside from pediatrics, that's Dr. Gannon's wheelhouse. But I am especially interested in caring for pregnant women with neurologic diseases. And that's one of the reasons why I've been so vocal on this topic, in addition to being an extremely concerned citizen. You are co-authors, along with Dr. Riley Bove, on a viewpoint paper titled Reproductive Rights in Neurology, the Supreme Court's Impact on All of Us. And I'm wondering if you can give me the broad outlines of this paper, what it's about, why you wrote it. What is the impact of laws criminalizing abortion on neurology, which on first glance seems like a somewhat unrelated field? Well, oftentimes the discussion around reproductive rights really is left to the, the obstetricians and gynecologists. But neurologists and physicians really from any specialty, I think we'll see that the impact of abortion bans on their training, on their practice of medicine, I think it's it'll be really hard to find a specialty that is spared from, from seeing changes from abortion being banned. And so it's completely correct that maybe at first glance, a neurologist and neurology as a field might not be as directly affected by this, but we are in, in quite dramatic ways. And that was one of the reasons why we wanted to write this so that we could bring more attention to neurologists as a whole saying, hey, we really need to join our colleagues in OB-GYN and other related fields and support them in this because it's really going to impact how we care for our patients. These are the ways that it'll affect our patients. We need to be aware of this and also hopefully be vocal and speak out and educate the public like what we're doing here in how, how this may impact care for people so that they really do understand the wide reaching effects of a ban like this. So. In practice, how might an abortion ban impact neurological care? So I'll start by, by explaining how it might be affecting adult women who come in with neurologic problems, and then I'll leave Dr. Gano to, to speak about the, the pediatric side of things. So 
as, as a neurologist, we see lots of individuals who are interested in becoming pregnant or have the capacity to become pregnant. And there are lots of neurologic diseases that can affect younger individuals with a capacity for pregnancy. And so some of these conditions include migraine, so specific kinds of headache, but also multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune disease that can affect individuals. And there are other conditions like epilepsy that can be pretty common and also affect younger individuals. So from the beginning, there are certain conditions that are common just worldwide and will end up disproportionately affecting younger people who, who may become pregnant. And these conditions, in order to treat them, we may end up pre prescribing medications that can affect reproduction, either medications that can actually affect contraception and how well contraception is working, or especially important given what the topic we're talking right now is, is the potential for birth defects with some of the medications that we prescribe. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important that neurologists think about how limits to reproductive rights might be affecting the way that we practice care, because we really are seeing so many patients who come in with these conditions that are more common when they're younger and they may be on medications that can really affect them becoming pregnant and ultimately the outcome of the fetus and the baby. One risk, it sounds like, is that if a person who's on one of these medications becomes pregnant, she'll have a higher risk of having a fetus with serious potential complications. And if she lives in a state that criminalizes abortion, most of those state bans don't have exceptions for fetal anomaly, and so she won't be able to end a pregnancy. Is there also a potential risk of doctors in states that criminalize abortion making different decisions about how they even treat women of reproductive age before they're pregnant? if those women have certain neurological conditions that would be treated by medication that could cause birth defects? As abortion access is restricted and even criminalized, our primary concern as neurologists is that this will lead to a different standard of care for all cisgendered women, for some trans men, non-binary people, two-spirited people, intersex people. This is going to have an impact regardless of people's personal pregnancy status, desire for pregnancy, or frankly, their politics or perspective on policy. The downstream implications affect every specialty of medicine, including our own. And because many of the medications we use have the potential for fetal harm, absent an ability to plan and prevent pregnancy or terminate if so chosen by the individual, Doctors might avoid using medicines that will work best because of the possibility of fetal harm. And these are medications that are effective, that have improved clinical care and outcomes, and led to a reduction in lifelong disability for people with conditions like multiple sclerosis. And I would add to that that we know medications that may cause fetal harm, but unfortunately there's... A, a large gap in the literature in our understanding of what medications really do or do not cause fetal harm. Unfortunately, this has not been a priority for pharmaceutical companies. And so much of the burden to understand safety of medications in pregnancy and for people who are breastfeeding, much of that is dependent on researchers like us to understand the consequences of people who are using these medications while they're pregnant. And so while it might be a little bit easier for us to make these decisions if we have clear evidence of harm for a medication, 
what are we expected to do when the majority of our medications is just a big question mark in terms of what that risk is. And so this is where you see more medications that have lack of evidence as opposed to evidence of harm. And that concern then is, are we going to be limiting ourselves even further with what medications we might be providing? Just because there are so many medications that, again, are efficacious and part of standard of care, but we don't actually understand the full extent of the risk profile. And so those medications may also be taken off the table. This is a pervasive problem in medicine that many medications, possibly most medications are not actually tested on pregnant women. And so we don't know what happens when pregnant women are using them. And as a result, doctors just routinely don't prescribe them when women are pregnant. Everything from antidepressants and SSRIs to medications that control other issues that can significantly impair a person's physical health and quality of life. Absolutely. Pregnant individuals are often excluded from clinical trials, which is understandable in some ways. However, there are other ways that we can understand what the risk of a medication might be just because there will still inevitably be people on these medications who become pregnant, either intentionally or unintentionally. And there are ways that then we can prospectively follow those individuals and see how they're doing, how the pregnancy went, what the developmental milestones are for the baby that results from that pregnancy. There are lots of ways that these questions can be answered. But again, these are questions that are falling to researchers as opposed to being taken on by pharmaceutical companies, even though it really should be their obligation with this being their drug. I want to hop in and provide some pediatric perspective and just highlight that pregnancy is not exclusive to adulthood. Children and adolescents can get pregnant. The median age of the first period in the U.S. is 12 and a half. That is a child. And that means all of the concerns about differential access to care and treatment in pregnancy, that affects the pediatric population too. And if you drill down to it and you look at states that are criminalizing abortion and severely restricting its access, those are frequently places where sex ed isn't even required. And if it is taught, it tends to be abstinence only. And it's not a surprising coincidence that states with abstinence-only education or no mandated sex ed tend to have high rates of teen pregnancy. I mean, it's stunning to think about. 26 states require abstinence-only sex ed, 13 require sex ed be medically accurate. This is a confluence of forces that are going to place pediatric patients in an exceptionally difficult position if they need to access abortion care in a state where reproductive rights are restricted. And in the not too distant dystopian future, that's probably going to include access to contraception too. And I really worry about the legal exposure to pediatric providers. And we can look at the case of the 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio that had to travel to Indiana as an example of these really complicated forces at play. You say you're worried about the potential legal exposure of pediatric providers. What in particular are you worried about? What kind of legal exposure are providers potentially opened up to? Well, a big issue in pediatrics is the consent of the individual and the right to personal privacy and confidentiality in their medical information. 
And in adolescence, under 18 years of age, parents have complete access to their medical records. So in any state where a child or pediatric patient that's under 18 might need to discuss contraception or access it or access abortion care, the ability for a pediatric provider to do that in privacy away from parents is a, a big question at hand. One thing that you say in the paper that you wrote is that these laws could further exacerbate existing social inequities. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about that, particularly as it relates to neurological care and healthcare. That's absolutely right. So when it comes to accessing care, people who are below the federal poverty level are more likely to seek abortions. Minority populations are also more likely to seek abortions. And we have growing literature that supports that, especially Black Americans end up having worse health outcomes with several neurologic diseases. And so I worry that all of these things will come together such that we see adverse health consequences of these abortion bans directly affecting the health outcomes of people with neurologic disease. Another point is that there's a geographic disparity that's already at hand. And that profoundly impacts everything that follows. The ability for a woman or pregnant patient to travel out of state to a place with less restrictive regulation is gonna also impact this. Moreover, if we just pan out completely, the social determinants of health, income, housing, education, are stronger predictors of someone's outcome in any medical condition. They're so fundamentally germane to health, as well as adverse outcomes in any medical condition. That's certainly true in neurology. And now these are synergistic things that are going to complicate outcomes even further. Not only will there be differences in access to reproductive health services, including abortion, but also just differences in access to medical specialists. So there already is a nationwide shortage of neurologists specifically, especially in many of the communities that we've been talking about that will also be experiencing a greater proportion of these abortion bans. One of the concerns is, well, what does this mean for medical trainees in the future? Will medical trainees choose to go to medical schools that are in states with abortion bans? What about residents who are training? Um, what about when they choose faculty positions or other jobs as physicians? Where will those people go to practice? And so will we see even wider disparities with just access to medical care in general as physicians who also need access to reproductive health? choose to work in states that are more willing to fight for those rights. That's really interesting. So we're also looking at a landscape where a woman like me who lives in New York, if I'm seeing my neurologist for migraines or multiple sclerosis or any of a whole host of health issues that I may need care for, that in that conversation with my doctor, that doctor will be able to say to me, this is the most effective medication for your condition it could potentially cause a fetal anomaly. And then I can make the choice whether or not to accept that treatment based on the fact that I know if I do get pregnant in the state of New York, I will be able to relatively easily access a safe abortion. And that conversation is going to go a lot differently if I'm a woman in Texas. 
and I don't have the easy ability to end a pregnancy safely and legally, that that itself is going to compromise care. That's exactly right. I think that this was explained brilliantly by the recent Moms Demand Action video, the advertisement that showed a really unfortunate situation where you have a woman who is pregnant and she and her husband are faced with this decision of a child with a fetal anomaly and making a decision around what to do next. But then you see that Greg Abbott is suddenly in the clinic room really being the person who's driving the decision, certainly metaphorically speaking in this advertisement, but really that's what's happening when you're having the government interfere in people's personal medical decisions in this way. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and these abortion criminalization laws went into place across much of the country, we have heard a lot of OBGYNs speaking out and a lot of abortion providers speaking out. We've heard a lot less from folks who are in other areas of medicine, which is part of the reason why I was so interested in speaking with both of you. Why speak out? And do you think there is an obligation for doctors who operate in every area outside of OBGYN practice to consider how these bans will affect their ability to do their job and to speak out about access to healthcare? There's an absolute imperative for us to speak out. The decision to overturn Roe v. Wade will affect absolutely all of us in every specialty in society. And as physicians, we have a very sacred duty to take care of people. It's a huge honor and responsibility. And part of that includes education of the implications of this horrifying ban. Ultimately, the decision to seek an abortion is a medical decision. And once courts come into that very private dynamic of a patient consulting with their medical provider about their best options for their own health care, that's a very troubling, slippery slope that we're all sliding down very quickly now. One hallmark of the anti-abortion laws that have gone into place since Roe v. Wade was overturned is that the list of exceptions that used to be pretty standard with anti-abortion laws, exceptions for rape, exceptions for incest, exceptions for fetal anomaly, and exceptions for the health and life of the pregnant woman, seem to no longer largely be in play. Rape and incest exceptions have been stripped out of most of these laws. Fetal anomaly exceptions have been stripped out, and health exceptions have been stripped out. The one exception that largely but not universally seems to still be in play is the life of the pregnant woman. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about how these exceptions actually work or don't work in practice, particularly around fetal anomaly, but also around trying to draw this line between health and life. Is there a clear, bright line where a physician can say, in this case, it'll just impact your health so you can't have an abortion. In this case, it's a life exception. There is absolutely no line. We do not learn about this line in medical training. And especially if someone is pregnant and they are ill, they can become gravely ill very quickly. And I think we've seen, unfortunately, many examples just in the media within the past few weeks of people where their water has broken and they're at risk for infection. and. Many of these 
people are sent home to essentially monitor their symptoms at home and just wait, just wait it out, wait until they are deemed to be sick enough that their life is at risk enough for there to be action that is made. We see this with infection. We're seeing examples in this with ectopic pregnancies, where we're talking about an implantation of cells that are not in the uterus. This is not going to be a viable pregnancy. And yet people are stalling on this being treated until the woman really is at death's door. It does appear that physicians, unfortunately, because they're so concerned about the legal ramifications, are acting much later than they otherwise would be. And that can cause certainly increased harm to women, not just in terms of morbidity, but certainly the risk of mortality if you are waiting too long. But then what about the health of the woman? So it's clear in many of these laws now that there's no exemption for mental health concerns, that if a woman is placing her own life at risk, that that is not a, an acceptable reason for an abortion. That if someone has a condition that might be life-limiting, say I see a woman with a brain cancer that requires chemotherapy and other treatments that if she's pregnant, will invariably harm the fetus. Is this person just meant to wait and just wait and be pregnant and not receive any treatment for their cancer for the entire duration of their pregnancy? What will happen to the cancer? There are some cancers that end up growing in the setting of pregnancy because they have an increased response to estrogen. So there are certain conditions where the pregnancy might even accelerate the underlying disease and cause, again, increased harm to the mother and even early mortality. So again, the time frame here just doesn't make any sense at all. This is not how we're trained to practice. And this is not what we should be doing. We should not be seeing people suffering, seeing our patients suffering and being forced to wait, being forced to make an action that we would otherwise do in any other circumstance because of these just ridiculous laws. In medicine, much like life, most things aren't black and white. They're shades of gray. And for these arbitrary lines to be drawn by legislators that have no expertise in medicine is very risky. And that includes this line between sick enough to be nearly dying to intervene in the setting of pregnancy and the health of the mother. That also includes legislators imposing their own belief system on what's best for another person's pregnancy outcome and the health of the fetus. So who gets to draw that line as to what fetal anomaly is severe enough for someone to be allowed to make a reasonable decision to terminate? Now that can be debated as to what constitutes a threshold, but that's a different discussion for a different day, I feel. What I'm certain of it's not, it should not be up to legislators. We haven't talked about fetal things other than Greg Abbott and the Moms Demand Action, which was a very compelling video. But I think it's something that does come up quite a bit in the media coverage about exemptions. Broadly speaking, the 30,000 foot view is that in fetal neurology, we work with obstetricians and maternal fetal medicine specialists to consult when there are concerns about neurological abnormalities in pregnancy. And these can include genetic conditions, abnormalities in the way the brain developed or acquired injury like a stroke, which can occur in utero. And my job is to give people information and 
perhaps most importantly, what it could mean for the fetus and the family's future. And my patients use this information to consider reasonable medical options, including termination. In the worst case scenarios, we're able to diagnose conditions that have an extremely severe prognosis, like a shortened lifespan and disability that will be lifelong. And in these really truly heartbreaking cases, pregnant women and their partners face unimaginably difficult decisions. In my experience, that decision is both highly personal and complex, but ultimately always made with love. And a call back to your question as to why it's important for us to speak up. I need to speak up because I sit with these patients and we help them as best as we can. And to constrain reasonable medical options that should be available to people is placing pregnant people and families in a situation of unequivocal suffering that is absolutely unacceptable. And so we have to advocate for people to have healthcare options that they deserve. When laws don't have exceptions for a fetal anomaly, what happens in practice, I, I think, is that a woman who's pregnant with a fetus that either has a life-threatening disease or disability is never going to survive the duration of the pregnancy and the birth or is going to live a life that is short, painful, and full of suffering that that woman and her family don't have the choice to decide, I'm, I'm going to end this often wanted pregnancy, right? By the time you're getting to the point of screening for fetal anomalies. And instead what happens is that that woman is legally compelled to carry the pregnancy to term and go through the physical pain of childbirth, the threat to her health that comes along with childbirth. As someone who has sat in the room with families as they're getting this really tragic news and as they're sorting through how to proceed. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about both the physical effects, of course, of forcing women to carry doomed pregnancies to term, but also the emotional impacts and the psychological impacts of forcing women through this. It's a really important question. And it's sad to even think about how many people are in this position where they no longer have a choice about whether to continue or terminate a pregnancy with serious fetal anomalies. To force childbearing in a situation of a severe fetal anomaly is imposing a set of unfathomable traumas on a pregnant patient, her partner, their community, and also providers that will have to stand idly by and watch without any ability to make things better. We know stress has physiological consequences on every organ system of the body. Pregnancy, of course, is a state of stress, let alone in a once in a century global pandemic, and you layer on a serious fetal condition and that is a profound amount of stress for someone to face. To not be able to exert personal decision, to have bodily autonomy, and to place women in a completely powerless situation where in slow motion they are watching this happen to themselves is a cruelty that is 
chilling. To be forced to continue a pregnancy that someone does not want to because it will necessarily result in a shortened lifespan, intensive care, and end-of-life care for that baby after delivery is amplifying the suffering to the dyad of mother and child. When I hear you describing all of that, what I'm picturing is a woman who's eight months, nine months, visibly pregnant with a baby that is never going to survive, that if she had had the ability to end that pregnancy earlier would have done so, and going through her day-to-day -day life with people congratulating her and touching her belly and asking about the baby's sex and all these things that happen when you're a pregnant person in public, right? That your body kind of almost becomes this communal property and certainly subject of discussion. Dealing with all of that and then going to the hospital for what is, even in the best of circumstances, a absolutely terrifying and profoundly painful experience that in the best of circumstances is mediated by the fact that you're inviting this new, very wanted person into your life. And so there's excitement. There's the thrill of we're going to meet this person that we've been waiting for. And to force that in a situation in which there is, there is not excitement, there is not happiness, there is just fear and grief and trauma. It's hard for me to conceive of much that's crueler than that. And so part of why I'm asking about the in-person conversation with these patients is that I think it's really important to humanize the reality of these laws and what they mean for your cousin, your sister, your neighbor, your friend. This concept of grief and trauma that people start to grapple with when they face these difficult diagnoses are front and center. And Grief is a process. We probably all know that from our individual experiences with grief and loss, but it's a very specific and particular type of grief that a pregnant patient goes through when they come to realize and later accept and understand that the outcome of a desired pregnancy will be very different than what they had hoped and dreamed about sometimes for a really long time. And the agony that is being imposed by forcing childbearing in these situations is, I think, crueler than anything I can imagine. I would invite any legislator to come spend a day with me clinically. I wish I could share stories with you based on, of course, privacy. I wouldn't disclose any specific anecdotes, but I think if the public could understand what it's like to sit with us and meet the dozens of personal stories that touch us in the span of a month, many people would look at this complex set of issues differently with that human dimension. There is incredible power in a story over a statistic, and that is a big part of what's motivated us to be part of this conversation because what might happen to their sister or cousin or friend will shift viewpoints and put pressure on policymakers much more than the statistics we could spout today. Well, I'm very grateful for both of you for speaking up and speaking out. Is there anything else that I haven't asked about that you wouldn't have a chance to say or to add? There's one point that I think is really interesting. It's the point that 
The other way reproductive rights intersect with neurology is the startling fact that people with intellectual disability are at higher risk of rape and sexual assault. So that adult with a, an intellectual capacity that's within a range of disability, who's not functioning independently in adulthood, is at greater risk of sexual assault, often by someone she knows, often during daytime hours. And that's another very specific patient population of ours that will be impacted by legislating reproductive rights. Sadly, they're a very vulnerable population. Uh, obviously, there's an abject lack of community-based services and a social safety net across the country to take care of our most vulnerable, and that includes adults with disability and, sadly, my own work, children with disability. Adults with a diminished capacity to make their own medical decisions are not only going to be at increased risk for unintended pregnancy, they're more likely to be on medications that cause fetal harm, they're less likely to get reproductive care and even access to contraception. And depending on who's making their decisions for them, that might not even include reasonable access to abortion. Such an important point. Thank you. And thank you both for this. This has been a totally fascinating conversation. I've learned a lot. I'm sure listeners will learn a lot. And again, I just want to express my gratitude for both of you for putting yourselves out there and speaking out about the impacts of these abortion criminalization laws on every aspect of healthcare, including many aspects that I think average folks may not anticipate. It's really important. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us and shedding light on this issue. And that's it for The Week in Women this week. As always, if you want to hear The Week in Women as soon as it comes out, sign up for a paid subscription at jill.substack.com. And if you're enjoying this podcast, it really, really helps if you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Bye. <laughs>